Um, today, as Phil has already told you, we are going to be talking about the death of Christ. Now, I realize fully that that is a heavy subject matter, and so um, I've been brutally honest with what it is. I've also been a little careful just because I don't always know the audience, but the winter of my freshman year, the Passion of the Christ Command, now this is my freshman year in high school, I should say, the winter of my freshman year in high school, uh, the Passion of the Christ came out. Uh, for me, it was the first time in my entire life that the death of Christ really became real. Now, I've heard about it over and over. I grew up in church. My grandpa was a pastor for 70 years almost. Um, and so I knew all about the story. I knew everything about it. I'd heard it over and over. I knew how he was beat up. I knew that he was mocked and ridiculed, that he was spit on, that, that he uh, had a, you know, a crown of thorns placed on his head, that he was crucified. I knew all of that. It's one thing to hear about those things. It's a completely different thing to actually visibly be able to see it. And so I remember the church I was at at the time. My grandpa was pastoring. They rented out this theater in Branson, and pretty much the entire church went, and we went, and we watched the movie, and, and there it was. And we went through this entire movie, and um, I'll be real honest, at that time in my life, I was not a Christian. Now, I went forth and made the decision to accept Christ when I was about eight years old, and to be honest, it was all kind of show. We've kind of talked about that if you've heard me give my testimony in the past before, so I won't get into all those details, but at this time, seeing this movie, I wasn't a Christian. Um, and this movie, honestly, kind of redirected that path back to God, to getting me thinking about who Christ was, what Christ had done for us, what it really looked like to be a believer, and what it really looked like for Christ to make the sacrifice that he did. And as we're sitting there in the theater and we're going through the entire movie, and guys, I, I was going to show a scene, but I'm not. Uh, Jerrica said I probably shouldn't just because we didn't know what type of kids were going to be here, and I want to give parents that choice on whether or not kids see uh, that type of blood and gore and violence. Um, and just having to say that about the death of Jesus itself shows you how bad it honestly was. Now, historians, biblical historians will tell you that in that movie, that is the best representation of what happened to Jesus that has ever been laid out. Uh, lots of them will, will tell you that, that that's about as close as that we can get to an understanding. And if you've seen those clips, you've seen what happened to him, it, it is, it's brutal. Uh, you see flesh and, and ripped away from his bones and you see the thorn placed on his head and the blood trickle down his face and you see that he's beaten and whipped and spit on and they mock him and he's nailed to a cross and you see the nails go in and I cried right there in that theater at 14. I really hadn't understood it before. I didn't understand what the action was and even if I wasn't sure about who Jesus was, just seeing somebody go through that type of pain and that type of death in the name of other people really struck a chord with me. And so today we talk about the prophecy made about Jesus' death and how it came to fruition, and we're going to get into the meaningfulness of what happens in the crucifixion and what it stands for and what it's really all about. And uh, we, I, I just ask you to bear with me. I will tell you that today there is a lot, and I do mean a lot of Scripture. So if you're anti-Scripture, I apologize, um, but uh, that's between you and God. Now, you can follow along on the screen. It'll be up there. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, we have a live event. All the scripture will be there. The main points of today's sermon will be there and a place for you to take some notes. If you so choose to do that, we'll be there as well. So, first thing, we just look at the overall story. In Psalm 41.9, explain, it's explained to us that Jesus is going to be betrayed by a close friend. It says, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. We see this come to fruition in Luke 22. 
It says that, And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. Following that passage, later that night is the Last Supper, and Judas attends. And then later on in that night, as Jesus goes to pray in the garden, we know that Judas comes with a group of Roman soldiers and with some of the Sanhedrin, and he betrays Jesus there in the garden with a kiss. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. In Mark 15, 16 through 20, we see that soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the praetorium. And they called together, uh, and they called together a Roman cohort, and they dressed him in a purple cloak. And having woven a crown made of thorns, they set it on him, and they began to greet him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a staff and spitting on him. And while putting down their knees or bending, getting on bended knee, they were paying homage to him. And when they mocked him, they stripped the purple cloak off him and put garments on him. And they led him out in order that they might crucify him. In Isaiah 53, 7, it's prophesied that he would be oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In Matthew 27, we see this come to be. It's verses 12 through 14 when it says, When he was accused by chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not to, even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. We got more, a lot more, and I'm sorry. Isaiah 53, 4-6. I'm not sorry. I don't know why I said that. Surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us who has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then we have Luke chapter 23 where we see this come to fruition once again. It says that the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they begin to accuse him saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus replied, You have said so. You have said so. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. See, Pilate wants no part of this. He sees his way out. He sees his way out. He sees that Jesus is blameless. He sees that he has no reason to bring this man to death. He finds out he's a Galilean and he says, not my case. And so he sends him over to Herod when he understands that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and you have found no basis, and I have found no basis for the charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. 
As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and I will release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas, it goes on to say, has been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Listen to this. They want Jesus killed because he's inciting rebellion. Yet insurrection, which is what Barabbas was charged with, is inciting a rebellion. And not only did Barabbas incite rebellion, but he also killed people, something that Jesus never did, a claim that they did not have. And yet they say, release this murderer to us, this person who has actually incited riot, who has incited violence, who has tried to subvert the government. Release him to us and take Jesus instead. In verse 20, it says that wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them and he just said, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who has been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As 26, we enter the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, and it says that as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Here's the thing. Anybody, anybody who was sentenced to crucifixion had to carry their own cross. That was part of the punishment. That was part of the punishment. So as we see in Scripture here, we see that Jesus himself was not able to do that. It wasn't that they were taking it easy on Jesus. We see that they mocked him, they beat him, they spit on him, they want to kill him. They're not now looking and saying, well, let's take it easy on him. We'll have somebody else carry it for him. Jesus was not physically able to do it at this time, and so they had to grab somebody else from the crowd to do it for him. 27 says, A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, He took the time to comfort those around him when he was, being, when he was the victim. Blows me away. And he says to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. Verse 31, for if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. On his right, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. They literally gambled away his clothing. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. After he's been beaten, after he's been spit on, after he's been mocked and ridiculed, he's had his beard pulled out, he's had a crown of thorns dug into his skull. And then they literally followed him around with a stick and beat it in deeper. And as he's nailed to the cross, and he's in the process of being crucified, and he sees these people down below him gambling away his clothes, he asks that God forgive them. Somebody cuts me off in traffic and I want to kill them. Probably shouldn't have admitted that, but it's true. 
I'm like, oh, you're going to get it. I'm thinking of all types of pit maneuvers and everything else. But God, in the midst of this, in the midst of all of this, ask that they be forgiven. I don't understand it. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him and they said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him and they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're a king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him and said, do not fear God. He said, since you are under the same sentence... Or don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you have come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. If there's any lesson to learn there, it's that it's never too late for any one of us. It's never too late for any one of us. It's never too late for anyone that we believe, that we love that we want to believe, right? I think a lot of times we look at people as lost causes and we say that eventually they reach that point where we just wash our hands of it. And we say, well, I've done what I can do. I've done what I can do. But as people, we need to constantly be in prayer for those around us, those that need Jesus. Because as a man is crucified, dying on a cross, he experiences salvation. Literally, to the last second, we all have hope. Then it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight To saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. There is so much here. There's so much here. There's so much I have to say in so little time. So we're just going to, I'm going to get through it as quick as I can. and, And hopefully you hear it and it's not confusing and everything else. But Christ's death happened just as it was predicted to happen. Just as it was predicted to happen. For me, when you understand these things, when you look at how Christ's death was prophesied in the Old Testament and how it came to fruition in the New Testament, it does nothing but solidify my faith. Now, there's a major argument out there that says that we cannot rely on the Bible to prove itself. But that argument right there is a misconception of what the Bible is. See, if you look at the Bible as one book, you are wrong. If you look at the Bible as one book, you are wrong. The Bible is 66 books. It is a collection that have been put together to tell the entire story of God and Jesus. Okay, to share the gospel, to bring the good news, to explain to all of us what the future holds and what the past has held and, and, and what we need to, how we need to behave and how we need to treat others and how we need to act. But it's 66 different books. The first one written around 1440 B.C., the last one written around 68 A.D. It's not the same book, not even the same author that makes these claims. See, the books that prophesy what's going to happen to the Messiah, what's going to happen to Jesus, were written hundreds, if not thousands of years before Christ's actual death. So when we truly understand that, we see 
that prophecy is being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. It's not one story written all at the same time. Now, there's a few things that really stand out about the death of Jesus that I want us all to fully understand and fully be aware of. And the first is this. Christ didn't fight back so that he could remain the perfect sacrifice. This is significant. This really hit me this week. See, I always, in my mind, thought that Jesus was just doing what he thought he knew he, what he, knew he had to do to fulfill prophecy. Right? Almost like Jesus was just checking off boxes. And even so, if that was the case, that doesn't lessen Christ's death for me because I still see that he went to the cross as a sacrifice. But then I started to really study what it meant to be a sacrifice. And hear me out on this. If Christ had fought his way all the way to the cross, fighting tooth and nail, saying, I don't want any part of this, would he have been a sacrifice? Would his act have been a sacrifice? My answer is no. And to me, I always thought that whether he said, hey, go ahead and do this, or he fought the whole way, it didn't really change the story. But boy, was I wrong. Because Christ came to act as the perfect sacrifice, and a sacrifice is just that, someone who is willing to give themselves up in spite of the negative effects against them, right? A sacrifice is somebody who says, I'm going to run and I'm going to jump on this grenade for all my buddies around me. That's a sacrifice. That is an act of bravery. That's taking that step and saying that I'm going to act outside of myself, knowing what it's going to cost me, because I love others this much. And that's what Christ did. Matthew 27, 12 through 14, it says that when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even, a single, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. A sacrifice is a sacrifice because it's given without regard for oneself to improve the lives of others around you. And Jesus could have easily defended himself at any point, and yet he chose not to. To be the sacrifice that God needed him to be, to be the sacrifice that we needed him to be, to cover our sins. Second thing we need to know about Christ and his death is that Christ's sacrifice obtained for us what we have no chance of obtaining for ourselves. See, the first thing I need you to know is that Christ was perfect. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And we know Christ was blameless. Luke chapter 23 makes it clear when neither Herod nor Pilate could find any charge against him. On top of these two things, he was literally the offspring of God. This is about as perfect of a sacrifice as you can hope to receive. And we needed that. Why? Because Hebrews 4.1 and 8-9 through 9 make it very clear. It says that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But in verse 8 and verse 9 of chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, meaning Jesus, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. And by that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Christ's sacrifice allows Christ to present us before God as holy and perfect and blameless. And if he wasn't that perfect sacrifice, if he didn't go to the cross willingly, that just does not take place. But Christ loved us so much that he said, despite knowing what is going to be happening to me, despite knowing what was prophesied, prophesied. I'm going to do it anyways. 
I'm going to do it anyways. Colossians 1, 21-23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free of accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the Gospel. Christ has obtained this for us. It has been won. And we receive it by putting our faith in Him. We receive it by putting our faith in Him. And without Him, we could never hope to stand before God blameless and sinless and holy. But through His death, through His actions, Christ won that for us. Because Christ is ultimately our salvation. Again, I want to read Colossians 1.23. It said, If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. If we hope to find ourselves in this situation, we hope to find ourselves experiencing the grace that is won for us by Jesus on the cross, then we have to place our faith in Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other way. Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. What I need everyone to understand. What we have to understand, though, is just like it says in Colossians 1.23, if you continue to put your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, that if we continue to have faith in Jesus, that that is obtained for us. That we get to experience forgiveness. We get to experience life eternal with God. We get to not be put to death. Christ won all that for us. What I need for us to understand is that faith is a continuous action. It's a continuous action. It's not that instant that we said, Jesus, I believe who you say you are. I have sinned. Forgive me. Come in heart and be my Savior. I think too many of us picture that one moment in time where we made that decision, where we took Christ as our personal Savior, where we accepted that he was who the Bible says he is, and we say, that was it. I got it done. I was eight. I was 18. I was 80. We look at that one moment in time and we say, oh man, now we're done. We've got it. God sealed it. It's over. But that is not what faith is. And that's what Colossians is try- 23, 1, 23 is trying to explain. That is not what faith is. Faith is every day taking up our cross and following God. Faith is every day denying ourselves when we don't want to. Faith is every day saying, Jesus, you still are today what you were yesterday. You still are today what you were when I was 8 or 18 or 80 and I made that decision. And every single day from this point forward, I will follow you. And I will do what it is that you want me to do because I place my trust in you and I put my faith in you. We are all running a race. And quite frankly, I don't think it matters how fast it takes us to finish it or how long it takes us to finish it as long as we finish And if we hold on to what has been secured for us through Christ Jesus, if we continuously put our faith in Him day to day, then we ultimately get to experience that salvation that has been won for us on the cross. And I will tell you this, that when Christ has you, when Christ has you, there is nothing that can take you out of His arms except for a blatant decision to turn your back on Him. And God makes it clear that if we rebuke him, then he will rebuke us. But if you place your faith in Christ and you stay there till the end of time, then you experience salvation and you experience 
forgiveness, which was won on the cross through a perfect and willing sacrifice. And that's who Jesus is. And that's what I want us all to know about it. Let's pray. God, I come to you right now, and I feel like I could honestly preach for four hours on this subject. I'm sure everyone's glad that I'm not doing that. But you sent your son, your only son, to live on an earth that would eventually reject him, that would abuse him, that would spit on him, that would say that even though you have lived a life of service, we reject you. Knowing that that would happen, Jesus, knowing that it would happen, came anyways and said that I am your servant and I will do as you wish. And he went to the cross willing and ready to die regardless of what it was that was going to happen to him. All because he deemed us worthy of that death. He looked down at the people who spit on him and beat him and placed a crown of thorns on his head nailed him to a cross and he asked that they be forgiven. That's a love that, quite frankly, I will never understand. And yet Christ looks on all of us with that same love, saying that regardless of what your past has been, regardless of what you're even doing now, you can be mine, you can be forgiven, because I'm dying for you. I died for you. God, I want us to really understand that today, and I want us to understand the significance of that, not just the story that some of us have heard told over and over and over again, but to really truly understand what that experience was. Help us to be people who take that for granted and never forget what it meant for you to give your life. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.